Well, as Amber mentioned earlier today, uh, we are beginning our new message series called Trending. And we're going to be looking at the importance of character and the role that character plays in our lives, especially as followers of Jesus. Now, whenever we're planning a new series, Amber and I always ask, what's the purpose? What's the goal? What's the point of spending five or six weeks on a particular topic? That's an important step because it's easy to lose focus and forget what we really want people to come away with. I think we live in a day where there's so much happening in our lives that it's easy to lose focus. I was on the phone the other day with my friend Joel, and uh, he talked about wealth. You see, wealth is a term used to describe what we typically do when surfing the web or scanning our social media feeds. You log on to find something specific, and something else catches your eye. Maybe it's an article, maybe it's a video, maybe it's a picture. And it takes you down this rabbit hole that leads to something else, and something else, and something else. And after a while, you forget why you logged on to the, the computer or to your phone in the first place. That's wealth. It stands for, what was I looking for? We have a hard time focusing. And I wanted to spend the first several minutes of this talk talking about the purpose, the goal, and the point of this message series. And my hope is that if you go out to lunch after church or when you go to work tomorrow, and if somebody asked you, what is your church currently talking about, you'll be able to give them a very clear answer. Now, Amber and I, um, may say that we created the idea for this message series, but actually it was assigned to us a very long time ago. And we just have to decide whether or not to accept this assignment. 2,000 years ago, a man that history tells us was rather small and unimpressive, who experienced a number of health issues, who spent a lot of his life in jails and prisons, who did not have a long time to live, wrote these words. He talked to the church at Colossae about the hope of glory is Christ in you. And Paul also said, Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The longer I sat with these words and reflected on them, the more that I believe that they are the creedal text, not just for this entire message series, but for our entire lives. As Christians, what do we do? We proclaim Christ. That means we don't proclaim catchy human insights summed up in 140 characters and punctuated with a hashtag. We don't proclaim self-improvement or stress management or life balance or career enhancement. We do not proclaim a system of beliefs. We do not proclaim a political agenda. We do not proclaim a set of traditions. We do not proclaim the superiority of church people over non-church people. We proclaim Christ. We proclaim Christ because he is the light of the world. Because he's the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Because he is the head of this church. Because he is the kingdom bringer and the sin bearer. He is the death defeater and the life giver. And to invite Jesus into a life touches a place in the soul that nothing else can touch. 
The other day I got a message from someone in this congregation. This person was feeling a sense of hopelessness. But after the Palm Sunday message and discovering that more important than feeling the presence of God is being the presence of God to others because Jesus is the new temple inside us, there was a renewed sense of hope. You see, Jesus in you is the hope of glory. With Jesus, nobody is hopeless. To say that we proclaim Christ is to say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So we're betting the farm. We're staking our lives. We're devoting ourselves fully to the crucified carpenter of Nazareth. We proclaim Christ. And we're a covenant church. If we were another kind of church, like a Baptist church, there would be two or three amens at this point. So we proclaim Christ. To whom do we proclaim him? To everyone. Paul uses that word three times. He says, we admonish everyone, we teach everyone, and we present everyone mature in Christ. A lot of times pastors are asked, what's your focus? Who are you most focused on? Is it the people inside the church or is it people outside the church? Well, who does Jesus love the most? He loves everybody. Whether they're inside or outside, that doesn't matter to Jesus. And we want people who don't know Jesus to know him because he's absolutely worth knowing. And for people who, don't, who do know him, we want them to know him better and follow him more closely. Paul knows the best way for Christ to spread to people who don't know him is to be fully formed in the people who do know him. The world, this world, is not likely to receive the gospel of transformation from untransformed people. So our goal is to put on the character of Christ. We must, ourselves, pursue this goal of becoming fully mature. And Christian maturity is synonymous with the formation of Christ-like character. Therefore, my sisters and brothers, in order to truly know Jesus, we must become like Jesus. And there's a guy by the name of Christian Smith who's a professor at the University of Notre Dame. And he's one of the foremost sociologists in our day. Not long ago, Smith said, the fastest growing religion in the United States isn't Christianity. And it's not Hinduism or Buddhism or atheism. It's what Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Moralistic therapeutic deism is the fastest growing faith in our day. And it's characterized by beliefs that Smith says are so popular, they're becoming embedded in the minds of Americans, whether they realize it or not. It's a belief that there is a God who made and watches over the earth. But who that God is? Well, that's not real clear. God wants people to be kind and good. That's the moralism part. What exactly does kindness and goodness look like? Well, that's not too clear. The central goal of life in moralistic therapeutic deism is to be happy and feel good about my life. That's the therapeutic part. But what exactly does healthy human happiness look like? Well, that's not clear either. God does not need to be particularly involved in my life. doesn't need to place his demands on me. 
but he's available when I need him to solve a problem. That's the deism part. How exactly does God intervene? Again, not real clear. Now, I've worked in youth ministry for 15 years, and so I've been involved in the lives of teenagers. I have a teenager myself. And here's the truth that can't be denied, that teens can be tough. Raising teens can be tough. Amen. That's right. That's right. That helps, doesn't it? Well, there's a book that's written by a parenting expert on raising teenagers. It's called, Get Out of My Life, But First Could You Drive Cheryl and Me to the Mall? That's the approach to faith with moralistic therapeutic deism. God, I, want you involved, I don't want you involved in my life, but could you take me to the mall first? And the last belief is, all good, all good people go to heaven when they die. Now, who exactly is a good person? And what kind of community exactly is heaven? That's not real clear. That's moralistic therapeutic deism, and it's the fastest growing faith in America today. Christian Smith says the real danger about it is that there are some churches that think of themselves as Christian, but what they're really living is moralistic therapeutic deism. But you see, that's not Jesus. That's not following Jesus. And so Paul says, we proclaim Christ. And we teach everyone and we admonish everyone and we do it with all wisdom. Why do we do it? What's the point? What's the purpose? What's the goal? It's to present everyone fully mature in Christ. Everyone complete. Everyone whole. Everyone just the way God designed them to be. So that human lives can flourish the way God intended. So that the power of sin might lose its grip on humanity. So that ordinary human beings who don't think of themselves as spiritual giants, nurses, engineers, golf course superintendents, teachers, bus drivers, middle school students, high school students, attorneys, construction workers, uh, meat packers, hospital administrators, everyone, Anybody who wants to might put on humility and selflessness and kindness and honesty and righteousness and love the same way that we put on clothes. So that the hunger in every human heart that leads people to throw their lives away on money and pleasure and power, that hunger for someone to have an identity, that hunger to become the person that I'm not yet but someday can be, can finally rightly be fulfilled so that everyone might be fully presented as mature in Christ. That's the vision for which Paul suffered and labored and struggled and was shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and starved and went without sleep and lived in constant danger and he did it with joy to present everyone mature in Christ. So if you bump into somebody at the supermarket later this week and they want to know, hey, what's your church currently talking about? What are you going to tell them? This is your turn to interact. <laughs> what are you going to tell them? To present everyone mature in Christ. Now, when you say it, you're going to want to say it with a little bit of enthusiasm so that they know that you believe it. So when you bump into somebody later in the supermarket or at your job or on the streets and you see them and they say, what are you guys talking about at church? You're going to say, present everyone mature in Christ. 
Yes. Paul believed this was of supreme importance. And that's why we're talking about character for the next six weeks. Because character counts. Character matters. And we want to be a people who choose what counts over what's catchy. Dallas Willard said, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. And so the big question is, who are you becoming? While preparing for this message, I was reading a fascinating book by New York Times columnist David Brooks, who wrote this book called The Road to Character. In his book, Brooks wrote about the difference between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the ones that you list on your resume. They're the skills that you bring to the job market and that contribute to external success. The eulogy virtues are much deeper, though. They are the virtues that get talked about at your funeral. The ones that exist at the core of your being, whether you were kind or brave or honest or faithful. And they speak to the kind of relationships you form. Now, if I were to ask which set of virtues is more important, most of us would choose the eulogy virtues. However, our culture has convinced us in a very subtle way to give more thought to the resume virtues, which is why we have a clear vision, a clear strategy on how to achieve career success than we do for developing a meaningful spiritual life that leads to profound character. And David Brooks goes on to say, the noise of fast and shallow communications makes it harder to hear the quieter sounds that emanate from the depths. We live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advocate ourselves and to master the skills required for success. But that gives little encouragement to humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation, which are necessary for building character. I agree that we live in a culture that teaches us to promote ourselves. Pride is the condition or the vice that creates this need to promote ourselves. Now, while folks in the ancient Israel didn't have Instagram or Facebook, self-promotion was still a problem in that day. And they struggled with it. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 23, whoever exalts or promotes himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Few of us realize how dangerous pride is to our souls and how greatly it hinders our intimacy with God and our love for others. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian author, described pride as the great sin. The great sin. And then he went on to say, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites. In comparison, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. C.S. Lewis was making a very powerful statement here. 
Pride is Satan's most effective and destructive tool. We first see pride in the Bible in Genesis 3, where Satan uses pride to seduce Adam and Eve. Satan creates doubt in her mind and convinces Eve to buy into a lie by eating the forbidden fruits so that she can enjoy all the possibilities of being godlike. You see, the desire to exalt ourselves beyond our place as God's creatures lies at the heart of pride. Pride is the gospel of self-trust. It tells us to rely on our own wisdom and our own power. Pride convinces me, I don't need other people to change. I can do it on my own. But how many times do I go down that road of self-trust and find myself exhausted, broken, and lonely? Which is why the key to character change is humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is sometimes cast as a sign of weakness, but it's not. In fact, it's actually strength under control. Scripture speaks of humility as a realistic and honest self-appraisal in which we acknowledge our strengths and weaknesses, our abilities and inabilities, and the gifts that God has given us and the ones that we receive from others. One wise person once stated that humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. The Bible has so many examples of humility, it was impossible to include them all in this message. But the central theme in all of them is clear. God instructs us to clothe ourselves in humility. Just a few weeks ago, the world lost one of the greats, one of the great Christians in Billy Graham. Billy traveled the world preaching the gospel of Jesus to millions of people. And he rose to such fame and popularity, it could have easily gone to his head. One of Billy Graham's closest friends was asked to describe his, the character of Graham in just one sentence, or one word, just one word. And without hesitating, he said, humility. And you wonder, what kind of experiences did Billy have in order to form a humble nature? Well, early in his ministry, Billy Graham traveled to a small town to preach the gospel at a local Baptist church. Before a sermon, he needed to mail a letter, but he didn't know where the post office was. So he stopped the young boy and asked for directions. After the boy told him how to find the post office, Billy told him, if you'll come to the Baptist church tonight, you can hear me tell everyone how to get to heaven. After thinking about it for a second, the boy shook his head and said, Ah, no thanks, mister. How can you tell people the way to heaven when you don't even know the way to the post office? kids. Yet Jesus teaches us to take our cues on humility from children. In Matthew 18, 4, Jesus says, whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the consummate example of humility. He laid down his power and his greatness, and he lived on earth as we all do. Now, earlier I told you the key to character change is humility. Well, the key to humility is community. Because it's hard to practice humility by yourself. You ever notice that? You know, you can't just look in the mirror in the morning and go, you're humble. It just doesn't quite work that way. 
No, humility has to be practiced. It has to be built in the context of community. Humility is something that takes time and it takes effort. And it requires you to wrestle and labor with moral decisions. But a humble character is not only built through austerity and hardship. It's also built through love and accountability. When you have deep and meaningful friendships with good people in the context of authentic community, then you're able to um, practice the life-giving virtues that Jesus taught about in order to bring about transformation so that you can be presented mature in Christ. Several times in his apprenticeship to Jesus, Peter learned the meaning of humility. Peter failed while walking on the water. He didn't have faith, and so he sank in the Sea of Galilee. Peter failed while watching Jesus back in Gethsemane. He fell asleep in the garden, and Jesus was arrested. Peter failed while claiming to be one of the twelve disciples. And he denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. The practice of humility in community with Jesus and other people helped shape Peter's character. And that gave him the wisdom to share this in his first letter to exiled Christians in a faraway land. He said, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. In verse 5, Peter calls all of his readers to clothe, there's that term again, to clothe themselves in mutual humility. Then he does something interesting. He actually quotes his fellow disciple James when he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Peter's saying, if you don't humble yourself, God will resist you. God will oppose you. He will stand against you in order to break your pride. God knows the key to character change starts with humility. And the sad reality is, there are some people who never get started on the path of transformation because they cannot humble themselves enough to learn and to grow and to change. But if you humble yourself, In the context of community, God will fill you with so much grace that you will be used to proclaim Christ just by the way you live your life. And I can't think of a better way to practice humility and community than joining a hope group. Last week, Amber said, the cross has the final word on death, but the open table is the ongoing conversation. And we're thrilled to see several people expressed interest in gathering around the table in a hope group. So now's a great time to get connected. Most hope groups gather once a week. And there's usually a shared meal and scripture study. It's a wonderful opportunity to love each other. To pray and to encourage. And to hold each other accountable. To admonish and teach with the wisdom from the group. So you can present yourself mature in Christ. While I'm not the oldest person in the room, I've been around the church long enough to know that coming to church on Sunday mornings isn't enough if you really expect to grow in your faith. There has to be something more. 
Pride says, I don't need this. I get all I need to know on Sundays. But humility says, I still have a long way to go. So connect in a hope group. Now, I believe that the Holy Spirit is the the source of inspiration. The thing that gives us the nudge to be brave and try a new experience. But sometimes, a well-timed video can put things over the top. So I thought it would be helpful to end this message with a special message about belonging to a hope group. So let's take a look. Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business, trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it, network, maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. You got problems? You deal with them. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We really don't want to do life together. Frankly, a shallow small group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless we're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth? Who wants growth? I had a growth move last week. It wasn't pretty. Hey, what's going on, buddy? There's no pressure here to remember each other's names. What's going on? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Aw, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Eh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. And that's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy. And we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say that we're superficial. But hey, the word super isn't superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group. Because when things get too deep, people drown. Won't you join us? As you could probably tell, that was made many years ago. But it still carries the same truth uh, today as it did back then. And we would love for you to join a hope group. And if you're interested in hearing more about a hope group, what's involved in a hope group, you can see Amber or Shelly. I don't see Allison here today, but you can see me um, and we'd love to talk to you about um, what it means to belong to a hope group. Um, I hope that you will uh, consider being a part of that. Um, so why don't we go to God in prayer? Oh God, this world has a lot to say about how to live our lives. And the world prefers what's catchy over what counts, which has a way of shaping our character into something that you didn't intend. As followers of your son Jesus, we want to put on a different kind of character. We want to put on the character of Christ. 
And my humble prayer this morning is that we embrace what you've spoken today and allow it to go deep. God, your faithful apostle Paul labored and struggled for this. He suffered and died for this so that we could present ourselves fully mature in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't happen on our own. We need you to help us with that. And we need to humble ourselves. This journey towards transformation begins with humility. So God, would you work in us? Would you pour out your grace into our lives in a way that help us become a new creation day after day? We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing. And we pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. 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 Well, um, this is the time in our morning where we are going to celebrate Holy Communion. And um, before, before we do that, just want to say that you do know that that's the opposite of what we hope our hope groups are. That's not what you'll find. I pray that is not what you will find when you join a, a hope group. But um, the Gospels tell us that the, the first day of the week, uh, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to some of his disciples and was made known to them by doing what? By breaking bread. And it's true for us as well. We talked about that last Sunday, that Christ is made known to us when we break bread together in the shared meal. When we break the bread and we drink of the cup, Christ is made known to us. This is the food for the journey, the journey that we're on, which God has called us to. Let our lives be nourished by the Lord himself as we celebrate together at this table. The Apostle Paul tells us on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me each time that you are together. And then he goes on to tell us in the same way that he took the cup, and after giving thanks, He raised it and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of, for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And each time you do this, do so in remembrance of me. This is the Lord's table. It's Jesus who invites us to this meal. We celebrate the sacrament of communion and we remember the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus each time that we do it. But we also remember the love and the grace that Jesus showed us, that he so lavishly poured out on us. For some of you in this room, you have celebrated communion many times. And maybe there are some of you in this room that today will be your first time. We believe that the bread and the juice here are means of God's grace, God's grace in our lives. And we believe that God is working in you, even if you don't know it, even if you're not asking for it, God is actively working in each of our lives. We ask that as you approach the table this morning, you do so with a spirit of confession, a spirit of submission to God, knowing that it was through the love and sacrifice of Jesus that we are given access to life everlasting. And this gift was given freely for you because of love. And if you've never given Jesus access to your life, you know, you can do that. 
today. If you've never said, Jesus, I want to put on your character, wholly and fully, if you've never presented yourself that way, you can do that today. Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If those who hear my voice open the door, I will come into them and I'll eat with them and they with me. If you've already invited Jesus into your life, let this time of prayer and communion be a chance for confession that you don't always get it right, that we need God. And let it be a time of remembering that we need Jesus each and every step of the day. Will you join me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today confessing that we have sinned against you. We have kept you out of our lives for fear of your disruption of our status quo. We recognize, God, that it was this disruption of Jesus that has made a new way. Cut a new covenant with humankind that gives us access to you. We recognize our need for your forgiveness, our need for your grace and your mercy in each of our lives. Jesus, we are ready to let you live and reign in our hearts. Take up residence there. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we may be free from fear and free to live as you have called us. God, your grace is amazing, and your love covers all. We call out to you today, Father, hear us. Hear us as we together pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Mine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.